Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. And I've been wanting to speak to this young man for quite a while now because I turned my TV on the other day while I was watching the World Cup and I thought, I know that face on the bench of the Iran football team. Roger Dessau, how are you, my friend? Welcome to the show. Ah, very well, Louis. Yeah, a little bit tired and fatigued. It's been a, a long four months, but otherwise... Very good and very happy to be back home in Cape Town and uh, looking forward to a good break. Lovely to have you with us. And I'm sure, as you say, looking forward to a break and you most definitely deserve it because I'm sure it's been a very difficult time. Before we get to chatting about the World Cup and, and how things went there, it was very kind of, if I may say, clandestine, if you like. Not that you were trying to hide anything, but you're the kind of guy that's so humble. We never know where you are and what you're up to. <laughs> My wife says the same um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, look, I've, I've been around, I think, once I moved down to Cape Town, what was it, eight, nine, nine years ago, 10 years ago, obviously with IX Cape Town, and then I just done two other clubs in the PSL. And then, of course, I tried to buy my own my own club, and you know, we got, I got involved with a club called Cape Moya for a couple of seasons. And then, just out of the blue, uh, I got a call from Egypt, the Egypt Federation, if I would join them. And I, of course, then I thought, well, you know, Egypt national team, it's it's one of the top 10 in Africa. And I'd had a, a few visits there when I was with Orlando Pirates playing in the Champions League. And I, I got to know a lot of the people there. And they obviously remembered me from that time. And, and they made me an offer. And, uh, you know, I started back in the international scene, really, um, with the Egyptian national team. And then once I was done with the Egyptian national team after the, the Cup of Nations and, and not, uh, you know, we lost in the final on a penalty and then, and then we lost the qualification to the World Cup to Senegal also on a penalty. So I thought that was it. But not even a week later, I got a call, you know, with the Iranian uh, Football Federation and uh, an opportunity came up to join them and go work with them and prepare them for the World Cup. And that's it. And now it's done and I'm home. And, and that was that. I've known you for a very, very long time. I mean, go back to the Morocco Swallows days and the Sundowns days and playing in the PSL, one cap for Bafana, Bafana. I mean, I know we haven't seen each other for a while, but I know your passion and your love for the game. And I know how deeply embedded you have been in trying to progress football here in South Africa, which leads me to the question, was it a difficult decision to take on the assistant coach job of the Iranian national team with all the white noise that was going on around them. It got more difficult when I got there. It, it wasn't that noisy before, to be honest. I think I arrived there and I was there for about two weeks and then we took the team to Austria to play. We played Uruguay and, and uh, Senegal in two friendly matches in Austria. And uh, the real drama really started was when, when we were in Austria. You know, that's when that, that young lady lost her life and then I think everything just you know, went up in flames and everybody started protesting and so on. And I think that, that was the big change when, when we were actually away from the country. And then obviously we went back and then we started encountering, you know, our difficulties to, to work there. But um, to be also entirely honest with you, I, I, didn't, I never faced any moments where I felt that there was, you know, anything um, dangerous or anything like that. I lived a pretty normal life. Uh, we worked extremely hard and we got around and, you know, obviously didn't see... A lot of what the rest of the world saw. And so, you know, it, it, it was difficult at times. It was a lot more difficult dealing with the players once we were at the World Cup and the players themselves were protesting in their own way. And I think that that became a little bit sticky because we were we were stuck in the middle of the whole scenario and 
trying to do the best we can as, as, as football coaches and professionals. That obviously is the most important factor and, and having known the way you operate, ultimately you're a sportsman and in this instance you were the assistant coach. You, you're not involved in the politics and there's been plenty of it here in South Africa as well as what must have gone on there. But then you you got hammered in the first game, no disrespect to the side, but what a good comeback after that. Yeah, it was. Um, I must say, after that first game, it was a tough, tough three, four days because trying to get them right again was always very difficult. And, of course, under the circumstances as well of, of the political pressure that the players were under. Um, you know, the, the players were you know, under a lot of scrutiny about do they protest, don't they protest, uh, what, what are they allowed to do, not allowed to do. And so there was always these issues that somehow always became more important than the actual game itself. And, and that was tough to deal with. But I must say the, the players themselves were fantastic. Um, they have a fantastic attitude. If people only realize what these kids go through, they have no idea, no idea what, whatsoever, you know, you know the, the life that they live in and, and under the pressures that they live and having to still focus in the World Cup. They were, they were incredible human beings that um, somehow they just get through it and they pulled it through you know, to get a great result against Wales. And coming in within a goal of, of qualifying for the second round was pretty close to impossible, and, and the guys achieved it. And then the last uh, of the round robin matches, which I mean, Murphy's Law, how the draw works out Iran versus the United States. I guess, thank goodness for you being in a Pirates Chiefs derby, because I mean, that kind of must have been in a way similar with the pressures that went on with that kind of game. Yeah, uh, again, Louis, um, a lot of the pressure comes from the outside. You know, the players themselves are, are footballers that just want to play football. You know, we, we spoke to each other in the tunnel and the, the team's just, you know, everything's just normal. You know, players greet each other. There's a lot of hugs and respect and everything else. But then, of course, the political situation around the world will take the opportunity to hype it up and, and make it into more than a football match. Because that's just the way the world is. And you can't get away from that, you know. Uh, but yeah, I think the pressure was a lot more on the outside. For us, it was just a question of, of getting a draw. And, and for the United States, it was a question of, of winning the match, you know, to go through. To be entirely honest and to be fair, when I look at it now, probably USA were deserved um, going through. I thought they were better than us, um, more consistent throughout the tournament. And they prepared well and they had a very good team. You know, for us, we were a, bit, we were a little bit up and down. And, and, you know, we played, we had a lot of players. They're not active at their clubs. And more than half our team comes from the Iranian league, which is also, you know, not as strong as, as it could be. So for me, when I look at it now, I'd say, look, you know, we did the best we could and uh, deserve the winners with the USA. And I think they deserve to go through. And when you look at it and you mentioned all those things about local leagues, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the fact that they qualified in a country like South Africa, for example, and a country like Italy, let's go, let's not even bring South Africa into it. I mean, Italy didn't qualify for the World Cup. That's remarkable. Yeah, you know, that's true. That's true. That was a bit of a shock, you know, but don't forget if, if Italy had gone through, they would have, have had to play Portugal in a, in a preliminary round as well, which then again, it would have had either Italy or Portugal, you know, in, in yeah. the World Cup. So I think either way, you'd have had a shock, you know, and the World, the World Cup is made in a way that not everybody, not all the top guys are going to qualify. There's going to be one or two sort of absentees from every World Cup because of the way it's done. Um, you know, right now, you, for Iran, they they're competing in the you know in the Asian section. So 
you know, that's who they come up against. It's not South Africa's got to compete with the African teams and so on. And obviously the Euro- Europeans are amongst themselves to qualify for the World Cup. I think the next one will have a lot more competitors and I think it will make it a little bit easier. So you might have less less upsets. But I think, you know, once we got in there, I think the real upsets, a team like Belgium not making the second round and so forth. You know, I think that for me, that was the, the shock of the, of the tournament. I always thought Belgium were fantastic with the squad that they have and, and the consistency they've shown with the manager and, and the team that have got all the top players. I think that, that was more of a shock to me. When we look at the, the whole World Cup in its entirety, what obviously you saw mostly while you were there, and then I know you were back before the tournament ended. Looking at it from outside, how different was it from being there itself? Um, yeah, look, I think when you're there, you, you get a better feel of it, of course, because you, you're feeling it in the streets and you're feeling it in the stadium live. Um, there's a lot of things that happen in the stadium that, that the television doesn't capture, obviously, and, and vice versa. I mean, you're not, you don't have the, the full view like when you're watching it on television with a commentary to help you with names and so on and, and a couple of replays and so on. But when you're watching it live, you have a totally different feel of the game and the atmosphere, most of all. And what I did feel, I still, I still end up watching about five matches live because I was watching opposition and, and things like that. So it was unbelievable. It was really, really good. It was a real family environment. I think the lack of alcohol helped. It made it a lot more peaceful and, and there were no, there were no incidents. There wasn't any incident that I saw that was reported. It was because Qatar is so small, you know, you're always within 10 minutes of, of any stadium especially on the metro or the train or the speed train, whatever you want to call it. So you could easily watch three high-profile top matches consecutively and not be rushed and not be stampeded or, or ever feel that you were you know, in a tight situation. It was always lots of space, lots of organization, very well planned, very well structured. The stadiums were unbelievable. They really were. I mean, I took, in every stadium I went to, I would take at least 10, 15 minutes to appreciate the, the structure and, and how it's built and what it looks like because they really were uh, unique and, and beautiful. Um, and then there was a World Cup that has never, that's never happened before, you know, where you could just move around. You know, I was at, I was at the South African World Cup in 2010. I went to Russia you know, in 2018 and obviously this one. And I can tell you now, and I, I know South Africans are going to me for it, this, is, this was by far a fantastic show. I mean, really, I think it, it it's by far the best one I've I've seen from all the aspects. I think if I have to be negative and, and uh, point a finger at something, it's just that the time of the year, it didn't give the countries enough time to prepare because some players were leaving on a Monday Premier League game to join a national team that had to play the following weekend on Saturday. And uh, as you know, as a sportsman, first two days after competition are a waste. So then you end up training for one or two days before you start playing in the World Cup with your national team. So preparation-wise was not ideal for any of the countries. Um, some countries managed to close off their leagues earlier, but they still had players playing all over the world that were still active. So preparation-wise wasn't great. And obviously, after the World Cup, as you know, they've all gone back to their clubs and they're all rushing back to, to start playing. And the clubs aren't really concerned about their national team activities. They want those players that earn high salaries to get going straight away and start performing, which might have a bit of an impact later on in the season with a bit of fatigue. Yeah, I think they got to, all got to be managed differently. So that was the only downside was was the time factor, but everything else was you know was a hundred percent. You couldn't fault anything else. When I saw the opening game and I saw the opening the, the actual stadium for the opening game, it confused me about these stadiums that they talk about being air conditioned. 
But they weren't closed. They were open, weren't they? But it was it cool in the stadium? They were cool. I'll be honest with you. The, the only time I felt that there was a little bit of a heat problem was uh, when we played Wales because we played early on in the afternoon. I think we played at one o'clock in the afternoon. And obviously, the sun was still directly above the stadium. You had the heat directly from the sun. Even though it's winter, you do feel it. To be honest, a South African guy like myself, that's pretty normal. You feel it, but yeah. it's just a normal. That's just a normal day that you're out, outside playing. But I think the European guys and um, some of the guys that come from the colder temperatures and that, obviously they, they feel that. And I thought that game in particular, I thought Wales against Iran, I thought Wales felt it a bit. The temperature does drop with the aircon because they've got these large vents. Um, if the game was on now, I'll show you exactly where the vents are. You can actually see these little big balls. It's like holes in the, in the bottom section of, of the grandstands where the, the aircon is blowing, just like they'll be blowing on an aeroplane or, or, or in your car or whatever. The vents are just blowing this, this cold air. And I think that the temperature would drop, I would say, about four or five degrees um, on the field. Not so much in the grandstands, but I think in, in the, on the actual grass area, you do have a little bit of a, of a cooler temperature. The biggest problem with the temperature is not so much on match day. The biggest problem with the temperature would be the three days or four days that you're training between matches, um, where the humidity really affects you, and where you train, there are no icons. So you have to train. And I think that's where the fatigue sets in more, because while you're training, you, you're wearing out your body a bit. And then um, it's not so much on the match day. The match day, it's pretty cool. Humidity is still high, but the temperature did drop. What do you think is going to happen now in terms of a legacy of, of the World Cup in Qatar? They've got these magnificent stadiums. Are they just going to end up being empty shells? Because what there's no real league. And there might be the odd international, I suppose, that will be played there. But they've spent all this money on these magnificent stadiums. And are they even going to be used? Um, yeah, they will. I think they have a plan for all that. Um, first of all, look, they, they have a lot of money. So it's, uh, the problem about spending the money is, is not an issue at all. Like they made their point. They made their mark. I think everybody spoke about Qatar in the last month or two, and they will speak about Qatar in months to come or even years. So that's always the idea of having a World Cup, isn't it? It's to promote your country and, and obviously some form of legacy that goes with it. So they have no issue demolishing those stadiums, putting up shopping malls or blocks of flats. That's just the way they operate. I know that some of the stadiums, they will be making them into smaller stadiums. They were built in a way that, that they can put down half the stadium sort of the top tier will fall away and they'll just keep the bodies. And you'll see that all the stadiums were football stadiums. They weren't multi-purpose stadiums. Yeah. Uh, they were proper football stadiums where the, the grandstands are right, right on top of the line, which was great for the spectacle that it was. Uh, athletics track and cycling track and whatever, and you're sitting 40 meters from the action. It's not the same. Very nice stadiums where you always felt that you were on top of the action. So they will break some of the top tiers and, and reduce stadiums that were 60,000 to to 25,000, you know, and it will keep the base of it, the change rooms, the facilities, everything else. It will just make it more compact. There are a few that they will be doing that. There are the few that they will be keeping as as big big stadiums for massive events. I know Qatar has already lined up the Asia Cup, you know, next year. So they'll have the Asia Cup in December again. Uh, they're all lining up many other competitions and many other events around the country because that's just the way they operate. They're always for um, different events to keep the country going. When we look at the event uh, on the whole, the one thing that impressed me from a distance, obviously watching it on television, you're in the middle of the desert, but they had these magnificent green playing fields that just looked fantastic. 
the the turfs were fantastic. They were proper FIFA approved turfs. They were very good all round. Like I said to you, you couldn't complain about any of that. Look, how how they're going to keep it from Yarrow end? I've got no idea. You know what what the maintenance would be like. That's tough. But they obviously have a, have a plan for it, and they all know what they're doing. But they were tops. They were FIFA approved fields with the evergreen grass on it, very well watered. You know whatever they did, that you couldn't fault. They, they were superb. Like I said earlier. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they they will maintain the fields. Look, we we retrained really. There was a club called I think it's El, El Real or something like that, and it's one of the top clubs in the league. And they them alone have, have twelve fields. And when I say twelve fields, they are twelve top 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 fields that we wow. trained on. We 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 used two of them, and those two fields were magnificent. And that's one of the clubs. They only have eight teams in the whole club, you know, with juniors and so on. But they have twelve fields plus the stadium. But that's the way they operate. You know, facilities and and all that is is not a problem for them. And they obviously they want to get on the map. They want to produce players. They want to you know they want to be a part of the game. And you got to give them credit for that. You know, there's no lack of trying. Obviously, they have a, a yeah. problem with the population of only four hundred thousand. But yeah, they, they'll give you an opportunity if you're there. In hindsight, when you look back at the tournament, would you say it was the right decision to take it to Qatar? Um, yeah, when I look at it now, in in our you know, and I look at the economy of the world, and how many countries can really afford to to have this type of competition. I think it's it was right. You know, you don't want to go to a country that that you know eventually goes bankrupt from a competition like this or doesn't know how to do it. And uh, but I think you know when you go to a country like it, where everything functions, everything works. You know, for whatever reason it is, I know they they got loads of oil and this and that, but you know they have their rules that you. you Unfortunately, you got to respect those are their rules. Like every country's got their own rules, and they put up a fantastic show. Uh, they really did. I know. I know a lot of people speak about oh, you know, uh, human rights and this and that, the working conditions. The reality is that nobody goes to work there that's forced. You got to work there because you want to. Um, you know, you can stay at home, not go work there. But we're very quick to blame the Qatari power and say, look, how can they do that? But yet. When they stay at home, they stay in countries where their own governments have destroyed their own countries and nobody talks about them. Mm. So, you know, these guys, at least they're giving you a job and they pay you, you know, and you can go home with yeah. uh, with money in your pocket. Where if you stay at home, you've you got to eat rocks and, and eat sand. And, and nobody talks about what about their governments they have destroyed their own countries. You know, so I found it quite sort of hypocritical when people have a go. Because when you're there, you see the whole setup. You've got to respect it. You've got to take your hat off to them. And, and respect what they've done. And, and what they've done is they've respected the game. They've, they've ticked all the boxes. They put up a fantastic show. And good luck to the next country that's got to host it. And you've got to match that type of uh, performance. And, and the next World Cup will be very, very different. As you can imagine, three countries that either one could host it on its own. You're going to have a totally different World Cup with a lot of traveling where teams have to fly out to play matches of uh, you know four or five hour flights to, to play a match and then get back to their base camp and, and so on. It will be very, very different. And I think that's where this one was good. It was close, compact, very well organized. I was afraid that the crowd wouldn't fill up the stadiums and, and I was afraid that there wouldn't be enough space for everybody. But I was wrong. It was loads of space. There was loads of... Everything was, was fine. I didn't see one issue. There was no traffic. Uh, the traffic There was traffic, but it, it moved. There was never an, an incident that you could say, oh, you know, we were late because of this or that. And, you know, the lights were on. <laughs> the robots worked. There was no potholes. <laughs> um, it was well organized. It was... Uh, everybody sat at their, at their seats in the stadium. It was well marshaled. There was thousands and thousands of workers. So... 
good luck to them. They they managed to to give many people an opportunity to work and and, and earn some money and, and enjoy the game. So let's just go back. You very briefly <laughs> mentioned your involvement with the Portuguese team. 2010, of course, you were involved. Your thoughts on how it went for Portugal at this World Cup? Was Ronaldo a distraction or not? You know, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I know him. I worked with him in 2010. And look, obviously, Portugal, I, I, I honestly believe that um, I think Portugal had a, had a good opportunity this year to possibly definitely make the top four, you know. And I think once you're in the top four, you know, you, you could easily win a semi final and get into a final, and anything can happen. But I thought they had a, a very good team. I thought they've got a very good generation of players, and they were very unfortunate not to go through. I think Ronaldo itself, a lot of people speak about Ronaldo. Um, you know, is it Ronaldo's fault? Was it this and that? A lot of a lot of hype is around Ronaldo. I think people must remember that he's he's a 30, 37, 38 year old. A lot of mileage on those legs. He's played a lot, and and he's a great player. And people must respect that. Of course, he's had a hard time at his club. So the World Cup has come at the worst possible moment for him. You know, unfortunately, he wasn't at the best of his form. But I still believe that he had quite a bit to offer. And I think if he had been managed. Uh, you know, in a different way, maybe they could have got more out of him. But I think, you know, Ronaldo being Ronaldo, he's, he's so ambitious and he's so focused on breaking every record and being the number one that he, I think he sometimes forgets that it, you know, that it's, it's more than just CR7, I think. But I think he's, he's been fantastic. I think he's a great footballer. I think he's done a lot for the game and, I mean, even for his people and society as a whole, where he comes from. But it's just not the right time for him, unfortunately. And, and things didn't go his way. You know, that's the way it is. It's easy to talk about it afterwards, you know. And um, as you know, we all, we're all experts the day after. But I said that, you know, once he rested and, and the young guy came in and scored a hat-trick, um, I honestly felt against Morocco was to, to start Ronaldo. A lot of people questioned me. They said, oh, how can you start Ronaldo and leave, leave the guy who scored a hat-trick on the bench? And I said, that's exactly why. You know, the kids come in, scored a hat-trick. He's now a cocker who he thinks he's the greatest. It's time to bring him down to earth and, and put on your, your big boy inside now. Let him let him have a go. Let him show what he can do. Because I think that would have been the right the right decision at the time because I think Ronaldo would have performed that he started now. And, you know, the coach also had a bit of faith. He's had a rest because he needs the rest. He's had the rest. The other guy played extremely well. And it's a nice opportunity to start him and know that you've got a guy on the bench that, that can score a hat-trick. You know? And uh, that was my view before the game. And then obviously they didn't start him, and um, and then of course they conceded, and then once they concede against Morocco, it's always going to be a battle. Yeah, I mean, I guess you as a coach would love to have half your players with the same dedication and, and drive and determination that a guy like Ronaldo has. Uh, you mentioned Morocco. Let's uh, as we wrap up uh, from the boardroom to the locker room this evening. Let's just talk about the two teams that stood out. I guess uh, from an African point of view, you've been involved in African football. For a very, very long time, Morocco are becoming a real powerhouse, aren't they? Absolutely. If you see what the, what the Moroccan Federation have done in the last couple of years, you know, what, what they've set up in Morocco and their facilities and, and how they've gone about with the national team, you've now got many players in Europe wanting to play for Morocco. You know, and if you look at their squad, there's a, there's a lot of those players, well, not that Moroccan, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and that's quite frightening that they've got an African country that can start to attract a lot of players from different European countries with some form of Moroccan sort of identity or, or relationship. And that doesn't really happen in many other countries in Africa. It, we have the reverse, isn't it? We have, I mean, you look at the French team, it's um, more than half the French team is, uh, is African or, you know, North, but they, yeah. they choose to play for France. Yeah. So Morocco have been fantastic. Uh, they really have. Um, we played against them. Funny enough, 
you know, before they lost to Argentina, the last team they lost against was Egypt. When I was with Egypt, and that was yeah. the Cup of Nations in uh, in Cameroon. And I remember when we when we got up to play, we played. I think we played Ivory Coast in the, in the first round of the knockout stages and quarterfinals. We had Morocco, and I remember thinking, "Oh, it's time to start packing up because to beat Morocco is going to be be next level." You know, I thought, "Wow, you know, to beat Morocco, so let's let's start preparing. Make sure the the bags are ready, and we've got to get out of here tomorrow morning." And we faced Morocco, and the best game we've played is you know with Egypt was was that one. We we beat them two one after going down one 0 in the first ten minutes. We came back to win two one. You know Salah Trezeguet scored, and was our best performance. But we knew then how good Morocco were. You know at, at the Cup of Nations, and obviously Senegal was also the next one that we thought you know they're a real powerhouse. With, you know hundred percent of their squad plays in, in top European leagues. Twelve players playing the Champions League. Most of them are starters, you know, they're not just sort of team members. These are, this is a top, top team. And very, very much the same as, as the Moroccan team. Finally, Roger, the Argentinians are now home. They couldn't even do their ticket tape parade because there were too many people on the streets. <laughs> were they the best team at the World Cup? And do they deserve to carry that trophy for the next four years? You know, tournament football, as you know, Louis, is never about the best team. I think the best team wins leagues, you know. You find a team like be it, be it Liverpool or, or, or Man U or Man City, whatever. When they win the championship in, in those leagues, that's what you can truly say that was the best team. But the team that wins the FA Cup in England is not usually the best team in England um, because tournament football is, is really that. It's a quick burst. It's three, four weeks of football with lots of matches. You can only use a certain number of players. And to play in tournament football is different to playing in, in your long sort of 10, 11 month leagues. So to say that they were the best team, you know, of course, they are the winners. You've got to say that. You've got to say, look, they were the better team. But, you know, there are moments in these tournaments that you, you just, you just escape. You, know, you just scrape through. You have the lack of a, of a penalty in a penalty shootout. You have a lack of, of a decision by the official. You have a, you know, the, those things all come to play. And unfortunately, in tournament football, it takes one of those moments that, that pushes you through and takes you on to win it. Were the Argentinians the best possible team? Look, when they first played their first game and they lost to Saudi Arabia, you know, nobody gave them a chance after that game. But yet, they sort of, they raised their game. Messi against Mexico scored a spectacular goal. You know, he pulled them out of the fire in that game with a great goal that, that just took them to the next level. And then, I think against Holland, you saw, saw Argentinian and you saw, you saw Messi really raise his game, not just as a player, but also as a leader and as a captain. When he could actually roll his sleeves up and and put up a fight and, so, and show emotion like I've never seen him show before. Um, so I think they were a United team for sure. They weren't Messi plus 10. I think they were an Argentinian team with a Messi in it. That's the best way I can describe it, if that makes yeah. any sense to you. I think in the past, it was Maradona and 10 guards, or Messi and 10 guards. I think this time around, was there was an Argentinian team that was pretty good, and they're still at yes, it. And yeah. I think that probably took them over the line. Roger, I can hear you're tired. You need a break. I'm sure you're going to have a good one. I thank you so much for your time, and it's always wonderful to see you on the international stage. actually makes me proud to actually say I know you, to be honest with you, because I know where you've come from, and I know how hard you work. Uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Take care and have a great break. That's another edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Hope you've enjoyed the show this evening. We look forward to chatting to you again tomorrow evening, 6 o'clock, same time, same place. Be nice to each other. Bye-bye.